The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. And today we do begin our study of the Ten Commandments, and this will take us through the summer months, probably even beyond that, until we get to the place where we're going to study another book of the Bible. Uh, last year, when we ended the Matthew series, I told you, well, I think that the next thing that we'll do is to study the book of Hebrews, and I thought that by now we would be several chapters into that study, but for some reason, God didn't impress me to preach from Hebrews right now to start that. And so instead, we went through a series on hell, on, on Satan. Then we kind of counterbalanced that with a series about heaven that we've just finished. And still, I don't think that we are ready for the study of Hebrews. And instead, I feel like we need to get ready for that uh, by doing an exposition of the Ten Commandments before we go to that great book of Hebrews that has so much to say about the importance of Christ fulfilling the law for us, that we need to go and have a look at what the law is and what the importance of it is and really to just to study it out and see what the Ten Commandments mean to us today. Now, unfortunately, many think that the Ten Commandments are archaic, that they are out of touch with us, that they don't have anything to do with us today, that they're not relevant to all of our progressive ways of thinking. Our modern culture says that what you should do is what you think is right. Uh, whatever's right for you, that's okay. Your understanding of right and wrong, that is what's most important. And that kind of thinking is not really new. It's not a modern thing. In fact, we can go back to the Bible and look in the book of Judges and see this is exactly what God describes as the problem of Israel, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So it seems like the only time that we have a discussion about the Ten Commandments is when there are arguments about whether we should remove them. Should we take them down? Should we take them out of the courthouses? Should we get rid of them from our schools? And those arguments are against them are rather bizarre, especially when the Supreme Court ruled that the posting of them violates the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. And I say that's rather bizarre because I wonder, what is it that makes the courts of the past 20 years more knowledgeable of the Constitution of the United States than the courts of the past 220 years? None of them ever saw fit to protect us from the Ten Commandments. Now, as I was studying for this message, I read an interesting observation about the terrible rise of violent crimes and pornography and sex trafficking and so on across the world. And this is not just an American problem that we're speaking of. This is a worldwide problem, especially in countries that were once considered Christian. And um, the, these countries have lost their Christian influence just as America has. And now the, the most serious punishments for those kinds of crimes, the sex trafficking, pornography, and so on, the most serious punishments for those are actually found in countries that are not Christian. Now, this observation was recorded by Phil Newton in his teaching on the first part of the Ten Commandments. He said that John Major, who was the former Prime Minister of Britain, told the British people that 
because of the rise of so many different types of violent crimes and all of those things that what their country really needed was to get back to the basics. Now, curiously, he never defined what those basics are. And then when another terrible crime happened that just rocked the nation once again, uh, there was a member of parliament who said, we've got to do something about this. What we really need is something like the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? He said, we need something like the Ten Commandments. Nobody wants to admit that we should have been listening to God all along. We should have been listening to what God says, doing what He says, and there is nothing like the Ten Commandments. There isn't anything that reaches into the constitution of man, into his heart, to discover what true morality is and what our reactions and interreactions and how we treat one another, nothing touches that like the Ten Commandments does. We cannot improve upon the Ten Commandments. We can't find anything like them. All the morality of the world is based in these commandments. So these are actually the basics. So we look at the filth and the perversion of the world and we think about crime in this country. We look at our progressive society that's rotting from within and we find out that the only way that we have actually progressed is that we are more inventive in ways to sin more efficient in the ways that we sin, and we wonder about what are we going to do to fix this. And so while we scratch our heads wondering what we can do about it, workmen are busily unscrewing the frames that hold the Constitution to the courts, scraping off the tape from the back of classroom doors that once had the Ten Commandments on them, and we wonder what are we going to do about all the problems that we have. And so while the post, or rather the, uh, the pseudo-intellectuals are saying we need to do something, we, we need something like the Ten Commandments to set us straight, here it is. Politicians are worried about such things as the dignity of gender-neutral bathrooms, while all the time they're setting up ample opportunities to destroy others' dignity through the violence of rape. There isn't anything that holds less dignity than to deny God's image in a person. Now the same politicians who make up these insane laws are the ones that have no problem also saying that the reason that we do this is because we're following God. If the religious right should complain about it, we're told that they do these things because this is what Jesus would do. That Jesus had respect and had love and he had compassion for everyone no matter what their lifestyle now, interestingly, I argued this with a young man just not long ago who insisted upon telling me what Jesus thought and what he did. And so I asked him, well, where did you get your information? Can you show me those teachings of Jesus? And for some reason, he never got around to answering those questions. Now, here's what we know about Jesus. In his temptation, he said to Satan, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. G. Campbell Morgan rightly said, Jesus, the author of the Christian faith, lived from the beginning to the end without deviation or exception by the words proceeding from the mouth of God. Now, if you take just a moment to look over into Exodus 20 at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the Scripture says, and God spake all these words, and what follows there is the code of Jesus' life. 
that he lived without deviation or exception from the words that proceeded from the mouth of God. Now, in our congregational reading of the 19th chapter of Exodus just a moment ago, and the giving of the law, preceding the giving of the law, it's several times it says God spoke. You know, a moment ago, when I just thought about this, when, when Eric was reading before the uh, singing of those songs of the choir, I, I thought, I wonder what kind of voice that God spoke in. And I had this thought about my, it's like Eric. Uh, he sounds a lot, to me a lot like God, maybe. Uh, but God spoke. Many times in that 19th chapter, it says that God spoke. And God spoke when Israel was about to be made a nation that was governed by his laws. And the laws that they lived by were the words that proceeded from God's mouth. Now, Jesus not only quoted the law to Satan, but that was also one of his favorite subjects to deal with when he expounded the self-righteousness against the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the law of God is definitive. It's the law that sounds an alarm throughout the Old and the New Testaments. The law is never abridged in any part of the Scriptures, much less is it forgotten. Well, today, that's not just, uh, it's not just the wicked world who doesn't want to talk about the Ten Commandments and tell us that the law is outdated. But for various reasons, Christians seem to think the same thing. And they think that the law is no longer binding on us today because we are living in the dispensation of grace. Well, that's a hot button in theology. Maybe you didn't recognize it, but it is. It is a hot button. Is the law really a concern for Christians? Do we need to worry about obedience to the law? And if we should decide, yes, yes, we, we do need to read God's law, we need to study it, we need to live by it, then we come to the question, how does that affect our salvation? Is it possible for us to go beyond the law? Can we do too much with the law? Does it become too much to us? And those are very important questions, and wading through them are, are necessary for understanding of God's law and why he gave it. And so what I'd like to do today is just to begin to step through some of the verses that we see in chapter 19, as here God is preparing Israel to receive the law at Mount Sinai. And there are significant issues that are dealt with in this chapter as Israel was about to receive the most important communication that they would ever receive from God. Now the place to begin is always at the beginning. And to understand the law, then you must understand the law's foundation. That's where we're going to begin. The foundation of the law. Verse number 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. I think you can clearly see that the foundation of the law rests in the activity of the sovereign God. Now, the first principle of the law before the first words of it were ever spoken is that it was never intended to be the means of salvation. That we cannot be saved for the law. The law was never meant for Israel to deliver them from bondage. It wasn't given for that. In verse number 4, God said, You saw what I did. You saw how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, in Scripture, Egypt always stands for the world. It's always a type of sin. Egypt is bondage and slavery to the terrible taskmaster of sin. And it's a type of bondage 
that can never be escaped. It's impossible for the person in this bondage to escape on his own. And we actually see this in the beginning of the Exodus story. If you go back to the first chapters in Exodus, you'll find that the population of the Jewish people had grown in Egypt, that they had increased in number so that they were so great that Egypt was filled with them. Pharaoh was afraid that they were going to be overrun with Israelites and that the Israelites would join with their enemies, with the enemies of Egypt, and then they would come and overthrow the Egyptian government. But we see that even though Israel was so many, they had no power against the Egyptians. They had no leader. There was no organization. They, they could do nothing but bow under the cruelty of Pharaoh. Egypt is a type of that bondage that can't be escaped, that it's too difficult to overcome. And the only way for it to be defeated is for one who is mightier than Pharaoh to come along and to effect the deliverance. And this is what God says in verse 4 of chapter 19. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. It was God that brought them out in ten terrible plagues. God's power over Pharaoh was shown. Now, God used Pharaoh like a rag doll. He strung him out. He strung him out over ten plagues to utterly defeat him and show his purposes and his power over him. Do you think that God couldn't have done this, that he could have just sent one, just one devastating plague rather than nine that proceeded to the death of the firstborn? Couldn't God have done that and just ended it all with one plague? Certainly God could have. But it was God's purpose to show Pharaoh, to utterly defeat him, to show in every conceivable way that he was more powerful than anything that the Egyptians could throw against him, against Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's gods. None of it could withstand Jehovah God. So God showed his complete control and power and sovereignty over all the earth. And so God said, you saw how I redeemed you. You have been delivered. There wasn't one contribution that Israel made to their deliverance. In fact, they complained to Moses, didn't they? While he was in the midst of trying to deliver them, they thought that Moses was making it worse for them. It, you're making it harder on us, because that's what Pharaoh did. He said, now you've got to make straw, or make bricks without straw. Go gather your own straw. Moses, you're just making it too hard on us. They're not trying to get out. They're not trying to help in this. There's no contribution that they make. When they finally did get out, they got to the Red Sea and they said, we're defeated here. But then God led them through. They got to the other side of the Red Sea. The first thing they did is start complaining. It's better for us to return to Egypt than it is to die of hunger and thirst in the wilderness. They didn't do anything to help God to get them out. And then again, God delivered them. And each time Israel didn't do anything but complain. Not once did they help God deliver them. And now here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai... And God said, you saw what I did to deliver you. And that is the first great truth of God's law. It is founded in God's grace. It is by what God does for us. It's the grace that he gives us. Now God's grace then is the beginning of understanding of how the law works. Israel was delivered before God gave them the law. And that's to teach us that the law is not given to save. Israel was all out, already out of a bondage, and God does not want us to confuse these principles, that the law is not for salvation, and that the law can never give us life. And I want to stress that point, and it will be stressed throughout our study, 
And I need to keep this before you. The law is very important to us, but it is never given to save us. And that is the great mistake of man-made religion. Man-made religion always says that our righteousness comes by what we do. That if you want to go to heaven, it's because of what you do. It's because of the good things that you do. That you can get to heaven if you just keep obeying. If you just keep doing right things, that's the way that you're going to get to heaven. Now these verses are actually an introduction to the helplessness of the law to save us, to put us into right standing with God, because that's never its purpose. And then let me give you another important theological point, that those who loudly pronounce the separation of law and grace often do not understand the relationship between law and grace. Even the ones that say, we're not justified by the law, many times they don't even have a, any better understanding of it than people who think they can be justified by it. And so we ask the question, is it possible for a man to be justified by his works? Well, you might want to hold on to your seats for just a minute. If you pound the grace drum, you need to listen because there is a sense in which works are necessary to bring us to God and to put us into right standing with Him. Now, some assume that when Adam fell from his innocence that God invoked grace to save him and then the covenant of works was ended. Now, the covenant of works said, Adam, as long as you obey me, you will live. But Adam disobeyed God, and so the covenant of works went out. But here's the thing that's missed, a very important point, that God's law is still there. God's law still has to be satisfied. God's law has to be kept perfectly, or there's an eternal penalty that's imposed. Now, although the law had not yet been given at the time of Adam, what God did do was to write the law on the human heart. So the law is not absent, the law is there, it's written on the human heart, and perfect obedience to God is still required. And so God never set aside the requirements of the law in that respect, and man is justified by works in this sense, not the works that we do, but the works that Jesus Christ did. We are justified by His perfect obedience to the law. We're not capable of perfect obedience. We are justified by the work of Christ in his active obedience to God's law. So we are justified by the perfection of Christ through his earned righteousness by his obedience that he imputes to us by faith. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You might say, what does that mean? Wasn't Christ already perfect? He's the Son of God. How can He be made perfect? And that scripture is telling us that His perfection was demonstrated by His perfect life. He kept all of God's commandments. Or as G. Campbell Morgan said, He lived without deviation or exception from every word of God. And so every act of Christ in obeying God's law was that he might earn righteousness that's given to us. So we are justified by Christ's earned righteousness, not because of his intrinsic righteousness of being God. If we could be saved by that, then Christ never needed to come into the world. Now, I know that might be a little bit hard for you to understand. If you're not theologically attuned, maybe that's a foreign concept to you. But God is inherently righteous. He is inherently good. God is good because God is good. Man is not good. We can't be made good. 
It's only by Christ keeping the law perfectly for us and then transferring that goodness to us that we can become righteous. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's God's grace that allows all this to happen. This is an act of God's grace to allow the work of Christ to become good for our imperfections, to be counted to us for righteousness. Every condemning violation of the law is offset by our faith in Jesus Christ who gives us his righteousness. Now, it's just like looking back at the foot of Mount Sinai. They are there. Israel is there because of what God did. They're not there because of what they did. God's actions brought them there. Left to them, they would have returned to the bondage of Egypt. So that's a very critical point of the law. This is why God did not say to Israel, Do you see what we accomplished? Do you see what we did together? I did my part, and you did your part. And thus you are here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Oh, how common that is to hear that saying is out there. God does his part and we do our part and therefore we are saved. No, folks, you don't have a part. God does it all. It's by God's grace that we're saved, not by anything that we do. So every time that a preacher or a priest says to you, here is something that you can do in order to be right with God. Here is a rosary that you can say. You can finger these beads and you can say your Hail Marys and you can say our, your Our Fathers and when you've got that done, then you'll have good standing with God. When anybody says anything like that, they are leading you to the law as a means of salvation and God says it can never be. Salvation is by God's grace. And this is what God meant when he said, I brought you out. I am the one that bore you on the eagle's wings. So that's first. This has to be established to understand the law. It's founded in the sovereign grace of God. So what is the law? It's the response of obedience because of God's grace. Obedience is thankfulness for what God did for us. You obey the law not to be right with God, but to demonstrate that you have been made right because of His grace. And as Christians, we need to remember this, that every sin against God... Every sin against him is a response of ingratitude for what Christ did. Now, we have much more on that subject to deal with a little bit later. But remember this, that the law for the lost man shows his helplessness to obey it, while the obedience of the saved person shows his thankfulness to Christ who obeyed the law for us. Now, next in this chapter, we see the condition of blessings. First of all, we have that foundation of the law. And then we find here the condition for blessings. Verse number 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now the conditions of the law have to do with the promise of God's blessings. The, this part of the law is just as important as the first. Without grace, you can't understand this. Without grace, you cannot fulfill the conditions of the law. You cannot meet the law's demands, and those conditions are essential for your salvation. Now, you need to pay attention because this is important. Would anyone disagree with this? That every person who is saved by grace loves God. There has never been a person saved 
that person that could exist in a state of grace without loving the Savior. In fact, Jesus said that's the first command of the law. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then further, he taught the disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So those who keep the commandments prove that they love God. And so therefore we can say that loving God through the keeping of commandments is the evidence of salvation. If you don't keep commandments, then that means that God, God's love is not in you. As I said a moment ago, there's never a person who's saved who doesn't love God. So God said to Israel, If you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, you shall be... What did he say they would be? He said, You will be a peculiar treasure and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That sounds so familiar. If you're a student of the New Testament, it sounds so familiar because this is exactly what we read in the New Testament for those who live in the dispensation of grace. First Peter says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now it seems that God does not divorce grace from law entirely, that the blessings of God become ours through obedience, and obedience is only possible for those who have already been touched by the grace of God. So we'd be hard-pressed to find a person who, who doesn't agree with this, that the blessings of God are predicated upon obedience to Him. We can hardly imagine that anybody would argue that point. They would say, well, disobey God, that's fine. God will still bless you if you, dis- if you disobey Him. No, God says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice. Now, here's the big question. What is God's voice? Well, it's not Eric's. What is God's voice? We find it here in Exodus, verse number 7. Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. If you want to hear God's voice, listen to his commandments. Now we find it here in the introduction to Sinai, then following up in the giving of the commandments, his voice is his word. And obedience to his word Obedience to his spoken word, to his commandments, that is the voice of God. And this is where people really get hung up. They claim that they obey God. They say, we're obeying God. But their obedience to him is not based upon the words that he spoke. In, in Psalm 119, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with a whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. See how it starts? Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. And it goes on. It talks about commanded. It talks about commandments. It speaks of statutes. And this is the huge problem today. That multitudes claim they obey God, but they've separated themselves from His Word. 
Now, they're like politicians who say, well, we obey Jesus. We're doing what Jesus said. But then they pass laws that are against his word. Can you imagine that a politician would get elected today still in our country? I don't think this would happen, that a politician would get up and say, we don't need Jesus. We don't need to listen to Jesus anymore. Who cares about what Jesus said? There's no politician going to be elected who said that. And so they just say, we're doing what Jesus said. And they have no idea what he said. They divorce Jesus and divorce God from his word. And there is no obedience to God without his word. Now, folks, believe me, this is a problem not only among politicians. This is a problem all the way from the Pope in Rome to the pastors of independent Baptist churches. Both have a problem of following the written word. Thomas Watson, one of the greatest Puritans, wrote, What is the rule of obedience? The written word. That is proper obedience which the word requires. Our obedience must correspond with the word as the copy of the original. Seen to be zealous, if it be not according to the word, is not obedience, but will worship. Popish traditions which have no footing in the word are abominable. And he also wrote, The papist, who as if God's law were imperfect, and when he spake all these words, he did not speak enough, Add to it their canons and traditions. This is to tax God's wisdom as if he did not know how to make his own law. And to that all the Baptists stand up and we say, Amen! Amen! Absolutely, popish traditions and additions are abominable and then proceed to do exactly the same thing by adding legalistic traditions intended to make people outwardly righteous. So we add to the law, like popes and Pharisees, as if God did not know how to make his own law. Now, do you understand this? Obedience to God is obedience to the words that he spoke. It can't be to substitute things that he did not say, and then say, well, we obey God because we do these things. Baptists have the same problems as Catholics, because we're not following God's commands and what God has spoken. There, there are no commands in Scripture for the preferences of independent Baptists any more than there are commands in the Scriptures for the traditions of Catholicism. Neither is obedience to God. And what we must learn is that conformity to God is not an outward thing. Conformity to God begins in the heart. It's the heart that's sanctified, not the outside. The outside will become sanctified by the heart, but we've got to start inside with the grace of God that works on our heart, just like it does here in Exodus chapter 19. Jesus said in Matthew 15, The people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And I think that Jesus could have spoken those words for the benefit of our Baptist churches. Obedience is to do what God said, not what we think that he meant but did not say. And so we tax God's wisdom as if God did not know how to make his own law. And so when we move beyond the written word to sanctify us, we've actually moved into legalism. But many people will finally get this point, they'll understand it, and then they move so far away that they move into antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means that you're against the law, that you don't really need to worry about the law, that the law is not binding on us, and that is just as serious a mistake. 
The law is the condition of blessing. God's law actually is more elevated by grace because it's only in grace that we understand that we can't be right without the law. That unless we love the law and live by it, we can't be right with God. And so this is what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has been saved by grace and then love for God's law has been embedded into his heart. And if you don't have that, and you don't do that, and you don't obey God's law, then the Scripture says you do not love God. Now let me also add this because it's critical. The basis upon which God deals with us is always his law. God's law is so important that he inscribed it in tables of stone, and then those tables of stone were put into the Ark of the Covenant. They were kept there. They were put underneath the mercy seat to show that God's mercy shields us from the condemnation of the law, but they are also put there to show that God's law is so important it's never to be forgotten. God wanted to show he never abandoned his law. And so his basis for dealing with us is always the law. And so we think, well, it would be better to get rid of the law? The law is rigid. The law is hard on us. The law was hard on Israel. Isn't it just better to get rid of it? Would we actually prefer to be rid of the law? We've done that, haven't we? And what's the result of it? It's the America that you have today that has all of these problems, all of the evils that are going on. It happened because we decided to remove the tables of stone from the Ark of the Covenant and say we don't need the law any longer. John Major unknowingly said, we must go back to the basics. The member of the parliament said, we must have something like the Ten Commandments. And we got rid of it. Now we're paying the price. Without the law, there is anarchy. That man becomes no better than an amoral animal. We're a mess without God's law. But then, there's still a greater reason why you would never want to get rid of the law. Now you need to wait for this. You need to write this down in your notes. That we need the law because it keeps God honest. That may seem strange. That seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? The law keeps God honest. The law ensures that all of God's dealings with us are consistent. The law rules God. How does it do that? Because God has bound himself to his law. The law is the revelation of his character. And he's never going to go against his character. It's who he is. It's given to show us who he is. And God never goes against his character. Psalm 119 says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. You ever wondered how God reveals his righteousness? His righteousness is what he says about himself. He says that in his law, and so he's always faithful to his law. This is what the psalmist meant when he says that what God has commanded is righteous and faithful. John Gill says, All the sayings in them are true and faithful sayings, for they are the sayings of God that cannot sin. The promises in them are faithfully performed by him that made them. So do you understand this? If God did not bind himself to his own law, then you could never trust a word that God says. You would never be able to be sure of your salvation because you don't know when God's going to change things. You don't know when God's going to rework all of the requirements that you would be saved. 
If God is not the same yesterday, today, and forever, then eternal life is no better than going to the casino and putting your soul on the roulette wheel. Now I want you to get this because it is so vital. It's bogus for people to say, I follow Christ. But then they have no respect for His Word. God's highest respect is for His own Word because that's who He is. Psalm 138, verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Psalm 119, 142, the righteousness is in, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. The 89th verse, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Did you know Jesus said that very thing when he rebuked those who said, or who added to what God said, and then made their traditions binding. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Matthew twenty-four thirty-five. he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away but my word shall not pass away. This is why God does not want anyone to add or to take away from his word. He doesn't want it because the word is an accurate portrayal of who he is. When we decide that we want to get rid of the Ten Commandments, then we're saying we want to get rid of God. We want to get rid of who God is. And yet that very word, that law, that Ten Commandments that are ripped from the courtroom walls and off school walls are the very commands by which God will judge us. And we must have that consistency in God. This is why he's bound himself to the law. In the temptations, Jesus would never yield to Satan's enticements. The law, the word, had him bound. He could not, he would not, he dare not. Do anything other than what the Word said. It is written. That was the code of Jesus' life. And so we're asking for trouble when we disobey the Word. We ask for the harshest of trouble when we say, Well, please, God, set aside your Word. Indulge us just this time. The Word is too hard for us. The commandments are too hard for us to keep. What you say is too difficult to do. And yet if God were to set aside even one commandment, it would destroy his faithfulness. Now finally today, I want you to see one other issue that's involved in the conditions of law keeping. You ever ask the question, what is God's will? How do I know God's will? Well, again, quoting Watson, he said, the moral law is the copy of God's will. Our spiritual directory. It shows us what to avoid and what duties to pursue. The Ten Commandments are a chain of pearls to adorn us. They are our treasury to enrich us. How valuable is God's Word? The commandments, the law of God? Well, obedience to His commands make us a peculiar treasure to Him. They make us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Psalmist said, in chapter 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. How do you love God? How do you show that you love God? Love is law. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. Now, do you see how important it is? That God said, my law is forever settled in heaven, and it is settled because in heaven forever because God has eternal purposes for it. This is the first part of laying down the law. Why did God give it? Not to be saved by it. But then again, you're not going to be saved without it. So make sure that you understand how that the law figures into your salvation. It's here. And God requires it. It's binding on Him. So it's certainly binding on you. So what what must we do? Make sure that we're following God by listening to His voice in His Word and obeying His commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we want to say as the psalmist did, Oh, how I love Thy law. And when we say that, we're saying, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. Lord, may it never be that we want to set them aside, get rid of them, say it doesn't matter anymore, don't need to live by the commandments any longer. This is the age of grace in which we live. We are saved by grace, so the law has no meaning to us. How far from the truth that is. We must love your law or else we don't love you. You put that into the heart of the regenerated person to know, to love the law, obey it. And by obeying it, we say that we trust you, we know that you're right, and that we love you. Help us, Lord, to have that in our hearts today. For someone who is here today without Christ as Savior, may they understand that very first principle of the law. They've been told and told and told and have always believed, I'm going to go to heaven if I'm good. I am going to go to heaven if I do this. I am going to go to heaven if I just keep doing the very best that I can. When my good things outweigh my bad, then I'm sure that I'm going to go to heaven. And that is exactly the wrong way. Only Christ gets us there. Help us to know that. It's by what Christ did for us, not what we do for him. So, Father, speak to our hearts today. Speak to the lost person. Draw them to you to give up self-righteousness. Give up works and trust you and you only Put their faith in you alone for their justification. And then as saved people today, may we show that we honor you by keeping your law, obeying these things, being the Christian that is what he is, what he's supposed to be, and that's only by the law. So thank you, Lord, for it today. Bless us in this time as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I said that we're not quite ready for the book of Hebrews because of how Hebrews points out Christ's obedience to the law, his superiority over the law, in fact, his superiority over everything. It's Jesus' relationship to the law that really permeates all of the New Testament. Now, I read quoted scriptures from 
the book of John on this, where Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And there were lots of things that are said about the law there. Uh, what you might want to do in conjunction with our study is to read 1 John. John seems to be the one that concentrates on this more than any of the writers, recording Jesus' words about the law in John, and also in 1 John, and how he speaks there of how the law of God and obedience to the law is proof of salvation. And not only proof of salvation, but of the assurance of our salvation. If you find yourself loving the law and saying, God, give me more of the law. God, help me understand the law better. Help me to live by the law. That's proof of your own assurance in your heart that you do know him. We never want to reject the law. Assurance goes out the window. Our trust in God goes out the window. The consistency of God goes out the window. There's hardly anything in the Bible that we could study that is more important than what we're talking about right here. The law of God. It's the basis of all his dealings with man. We need to know the law of God and how Christ satisfied it for us. If you have any questions about the message today, we welcome them. Uh, men are in the back. We have people at the front. You talk to me about it. We want you to understand what we believe in this church we are people of grace. We believe in the grace of God, but we also understand how the law works with grace, how they are complementary, how we can't have one without the other. One does not work without the other. And that's what we're going to show as we look at our study over the next several weeks. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.